We want to continue our worship by taking our Bibles now and turning to the book of John. John chapter 5, we're in the middle of a study on the authority of Christ from this chapter. And to reorient us to the story and prepare us for the text that we'll actually be studying, verses 19 to 30 in particular, I would simply point you to verse 18. Let's begin by reading John 5, verse 18. That is a very regal introduction to (laughs) this particular text. With music in background, let us read... This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. They wanted to kill him. I'm aware that It's move up Sunday here at the church. And because of that, there's a whole new host of young people in this service who have not been in here before. Welcome. I am glad you are here. And I will do my best today, parents and children alike, to recognize the fact that there is a younger element among us today. So I would ask a question to the children and the young at heart. Is it ever right to pick a fight? Is it ever right to pick a fight? Now, I am not asking, is it ever right to fight? I'm asking, is it ever right to start a fight, to pick one, to provoke it? You don't have to answer out loud. I just want you to think about it inside. Because what we see happening here in John chapter 5 is nothing short of Jesus starting a fight. That's what he did in the first 18 verses. He intentionally picked a man who was well known to have great needs. And on the Sabbath day, in the middle of a very busy feast in Jerusalem, he heals this guy and bosses him around while doing so, giving him three specific commands. You're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. Jesus commands him to do three things, one of which was very public. Pick up your bed and then walk around. Jesus knew all the while that this would provoke the ire, the the frustration, the anger of the religious leaders. And so the man is confronted by the religious authorities They ask him, who in the world did this? Who told you that you could do this? And the guy says, I don't know his name. He just told me that I'm supposed to get up and walk, and he healed me. So now they're angry. These religious guys are angry because there's this other guy going around telling people to work on the Sabbath, and that was one of their special rules that you were not supposed to break at all. So you've got a guy going around causing trouble. And then Jesus, knowing that they're looking for him, finds the guy that he heals and he says, oh, by the way, it's me. The text doesn't record that he says his name is Jesus, but from the conversation, since he starts asking the guy about sin, not just physical healing, like it becomes very obvious that this is the same Jesus who's been ministering in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, basically, all right, it's me. And so the guy goes and he tells on Jesus to the religious authorities, and they come and confront him. And it says that they hated him so much that they even wanted to kill him. And so, we find ourselves now at a point in the text where Jesus is beginning to debate and argue with these guys because that's exactly what he wanted to happen. He wanted to get in the argument. So to our young friends, again, just keep in mind, is it right ever to pick a fight I'll let your parents answer that question. But for Jesus, it was right. (laughs) 
And for all of us who know the story, you're like, yeah, I'm glad Jesus is sticking it to the religious, uh, the quasi-religious authorities, these people who invented all these rules, and they were oppressing these people. I mean, after all, the guy was healed on the Sabbath. Why would anybody ever have a problem with that? And so there's an aspect within each of us that kind of likes this Jesus who stands up against these aberrant authorities of the day. And we know that Jesus would at any time in history provoke a full-out debate or competition or show himself to be superior to any rival authority, especially when people start getting in this quasi-religious, we're going to make up our own rules so that we can be right with God. You like a Jesus who picks a fight with uh, legalistic religious systems such as Roman Catholicism. We know that one. That one's inherent to us because some of you have been saved out of that and you know what it was like to, to, to have this mantra, salvation by grace through faith, but not faith alone like we sang about, but faith plus the sacraments, faith plus penance, faith plus confession, faith plus baptism. And many never even knowing any religious freedom whatsoever, no true assurance of salvation. You're like, yeah, Jesus, pick on those people. Pick on the Muslims with their, their four pillars and those acts that you have to do to somehow be right with Allah or God. Pick on Judaism like he does here with its adherence to the Old Testament and all the rules that it added to the rules. Pick on the religious types, Jesus. But I don't know that we're quite ready for Jesus to pick a fight with all the authorities. I want you to be aware, friends, that when we come to a text like this, it's easy for us to apply it by thinking of popular religion being pitted against Jesus. But we forget that there is another more pervasive religion out there among us that Jesus would pick a fight with as well. There's the traditional religious, extra-biblical kind of authorities, but there is a, a new religion in town. It's been around for a long time. It's been in the works for at least, formally speaking, 400 years. But it just is beginning to make its way across the entire world, of course, starting here with us in the 21st century West. And it is the religion of, are you ready for it? Expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. There is a religion out there today that claims authority in opposition to Jesus that isn't as easily identifiable as the other ones, Roman Catholicism, Islam, Judaism, it's way more deceptive, but it's real. And Jesus would fight with this as well. The major tenets of this new religion are as follows. I mean, this is uh, from an author who's doing way more uh, research on this than I, but when we talk about the major tenets of this new religion, this com- competition to the authority of Jesus, I think you're going to see how prevalent this really is. Uh, first, its mission. Its mission is to find yourself by looking inward. So this new, this new religion says, hey, you are your own boss, you find yourself, you need to be true to yourself. The highest goal, second, is by finding happiness in this life. Happiness at all costs. As long as you feel happy, that's what you need to do. Three, all moral judgments are merely expressions of personal feeling or personal preference. Sound familiar? Does it sound like Jesus' authority? No. (laughs) All moral judgments are not subject to the rule of Christ. They are merely expressions of personal feeling or personal preference. Four, forms of external authority are to be rejected. So this particular religion would actually be with Jesus and picking on those other religions that people constantly recognize because they're oppressive and they work from the outside. But what this particular religion will not buy into is the fact that anyone anywhere should be telling them what to do. It should be derived from within. 
Does that make sense? The fifth tenet is that the world will improve dramatically as the scope of individual freedom grows. Six, everyone's quest for self-expression should be celebrated. And then lastly, certain aspects of a person's identity, such as their gender, ethnicity, or sexuality, are of the most importance. Now, if if this still isn't ringing a bell to you, or you still can't recognize this, some of the prophets of this particular religion you would know well. Oprah, Ellen DeGeneres, Beyonce, Michelle Obama, Steph Curry, and even Donald Trump. And the most popular spokespersons in these days are 99.9% of student body presidents giving a speech at graduation. What is it that they say? Be true to yourself. Discover yourself. You be you. Do your thing. Its anthem, by the way, is actually one that has captured an entire generation. And young people, here's where you get to tune in again. You know the song well. It's one of the most popular Disney songs ever produced with over 2 billion listens. Frozen's. A little monta- I mean, a monologue from Elsa where she says, It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Anybody know that one? Does it haunt you in your sleep as it does me from time to time? (laughs) One author wrote, If you were neither the parent of young children nor a connoisseur of animated musicals in 2013, it's hard to explain the cultural force that was Frozen's signature ballad, Let It Go. It was the perpetual soundtrack of children's play dates, car rides, and birthday parties, It stalked your days and haunted your dreams. (laughs) But I'm not saying that you can never listen to the song, but I'm telling you it does represent the mantra of the age, of the new religion. Tim Keller explains it this way. He says, identity not realized in this song is not realized traditionally by submitting your desires to the good of family or to the good of faith or other people. Instead, we become individuals, we become free by asserting our desires against society, by expressing our feelings and fulfilling our dreams regardless of what anybody says. It's a religion. It's a way to find happiness. It establishes an authority that is different than Jesus. And that authority is the self. So as we step into a passage in which Jesus is going to explain his ultimate authority, I need you to, to think about the, rival, the rivals to Jesus' authority on both sides of the issue. You could think of the legalists who add rules and wear religious garb And I want you to think of the individualists who claim that no one can tell them what is right from wrong apart from what they feel in their own heart. A timely consideration, seeing that many have proclaimed this month to be none other than what? Pride month. Think of the stinking title. Pride month. Me, myself, and I determine who we are, what we do. And in light of that, Jesus, if we were to show up in the way that he did here in John chapter 5, would pick a fight not only with the religionists, but the individualists as well. And with that, we need to understand, though Jesus would pick a fight with the rival authorities, he also will present a case against them as well. We noted in verses 1 through 18 what I called the provocation. Jesus provokes the alternate authority. Here in verses 19 through 30, we're going to see the explanation. So, 
John 5 is about the ultimacy of Jesus' authority. Verses 1 through 19 are the provocation. Verses, uh, excuse me, 1 through 18. Verses 19 through 30 are the explanation. And then next week, in verses 31 to the end of the chapter, we're going to see the verification. Jesus is going to prove that he is that authority. So how does Jesus explain his ultimate authority? The reason I didn't read the particular passage that we're actually going to be studying today is because it is, the best way to say it, it's dense. It is so dense. What would happen is we'd be reading like three verses into it and you'd probably mentally check out because it's very hard to follow on the surface. But Jesus is crafting an explanation of why any alternate authority should submit to him as the ultimate authority and his, uh, his speech, his explanation, is centered around two themes. Two themes. I'm just going to give you two key words. This is the simplest way that I can explain what Jesus is saying here. Firstly, he explains the ultimacy of his authority uh, but through the theme of representation. Representation. He's going to posit himself as the authoritative representative of the Heavenly Father. That's verses 19 to 24. The second theme that he's going to unpack to show the ultimacy of his authority is resurrection. Basically, he's going to portray himself as the MC of the resurrection at the end of time. And if you're not familiar with MC, it means the master of ceremonies. Jesus is saying that he rules over the most climactic event on the eternal calendar. So those two themes, that's how you're going to get it. Jesus' authority is ultimate. We see this through the theme of his representation. We see this through the theme of his rule over the resurrection. Let's note this first one, this representation aspect. Look with me in verses uh, 19 to the first half of verse 20. Notice, he was making himself equal with God, and this is what he said to those alternate authorities. Truly, truly, I say to you, meaning that this is beyond debate, The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. Now pause there. Remember, uh, the end of verse 18 says that Jesus is showing us that He was equal with God. Notice how He does that. He does it by acknowledging that he is in some sense submitted to the Father. But he's still on level with the Father as his representative. This is the kind of stuff that makes your head hurt. I mean, because truly, Jesus is saying, the Son does nothing on his own accord. Now, the Son does have an independent personality insofar as like he can make decisions. But he never works in opposition to his Father. He does what he sees his Father doing. The metaphor here is actually one that people in that day would have recognized. That of a family business and a son apprenticing his father. So, like we live in the age in which everybody kind of chooses their own job. I think the new one, by the way, for those of you who are heading into college, is that someone is going to change their major on average now five times. When I graduated, however long ago that was, dang, 20 years It was three times. People would change their major three times. Now we're at five times. I mean, like people are like frozen with options because they don't even know. They've got so many different things they can supposedly do. You know, in the the first century, you know how many options you had? Zero. (laughs) You didn't opt anything. You did whatever your parents did. So uh, if your father was a farmer, you're a farmer. If your father was uh, someone who made pots, a potter, he, you would do the same. There was just no question. So naturally, how would someone learn a trade? The same way they do today. They would do it by looking, observing to see what their father would do, knowing that in the next generation that they would be the full representation of the family authority. We live in an egalitarian age. We're all about splitting it up and saying everybody's equal. But in a first century context especially, all the authority of the home rested in one individual known as the pater familia. 
This was the, the head of the house, if you will. All the authority rested with him. And you know who that authority would then go to? The oldest son. Now, if you're not the oldest in here like I am, you take offense to that. You think it's a bad rule. Those of us who are the oldest, we're like, yeah, Jesus had it right. <laughs> but you know what? This is a real thing. Think about, as you know, the Old Testament, for example. Think about the Old Testament, like the wrestling matches that would take place over the birthright and the blessing. Do you remember that? We read that as 21st century Christians, right? Wait, what's those guys' problems? Who cares? It's because that's where all the authority would reside, in the Son, in the specially recognized Son. I mean, this is also seen in other places, like uh, the story of the, the, the wicked tenants. Do you remember that? In Matthew chapter 21, this, this, uh, this father owns a vineyard, and it's the family business, right? He goes off on a trip, and he hears that the vineyard's not running the way that he wants it to, to go, so he sends a few servants. And do you know, remember what happens? The tenants, the guys overseeing the vineyard, they beat up and kill some of the servants. And then what happens? The father sends his son. The story builds to the sending of his son because the son is the full representative of the father in the family business. Jesus here is presenting himself as the son. He is indeed the son of the father, and as such, he has every right to do whatever God the father would do. He is equal with God. Does this make sense? Now, he's going to give specific expressions of that equality. Specific expressions of that as we continue to read. Look at the second half of verse 20. And greater works than these will he show him. Talking about greater works than these will the Father show the Son so that you may marvel. What are the works that he's already done? Well, we've seen him in the book of John change water into wine, for example. That's something that only God could do. The change, the chemical composition of something through the mere will of the mind. Uh, We've seen him reverse disease. We will see him do even more amazing things. But he's doing things so far that only God can do. But what he's saying is you're going to see even greater works than these. So that you may marvel. The whole point is that you would be amazed. Like that that jaw-dropping experience. Like he's going to teach this, the Son will do these things so that you would marvel. Look at verse 21. Here's another thing the Son will be able to do on behalf of the Father. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom He will. Uh, friends, as we think about the categories of things that we can do even in our 21st century age, at the end of the day, we're going to recognize that no matter how many advances have been made in the scientific community, no one yet has mastered death. I mean, last time I saw the stats, 10 out of 10 still die. Only God could overcome death. And what the text is saying is that the Son of the Father will also have the same power to overcome death. That means a lot for those who will read the rest of this book. Notice another thing the Son will be able to do in the family business, if you will. Verse 22 The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So, the giving of life, that's the prerogative of God that that the Son has, and the exercise of judgment, being the ultimate ruler and judge, being the ultimate decider of one's eternal fate, that is entrusted to him as well. And you notice four times in that one verse the word honor shows up. Honor, 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 honor. That's why we even call judges today the honorable judge so-and-so. Like we recognize that they have all the authority in that courtroom. Jesus here is presenting himself as the one who deserves, listen to this, the same amount of honor as the Father himself. He is placing himself on equal ground with the Father. The Son is the authoritative representation of the Father. So, Um, You want to take a theology break? All right, now here's where, children, you can just draw a picture for a second. I'll tell you when to check back in, because I'm about to use some big words, but it's going to be for those of you who are adults and need to understand how to explain this to others. 
I want you to get something, and we don't teach Trinitarian theology enough in churches like this. This is fact. we got to get Jesus right. In essence, He is the same as the Father in His ontology, in who He is. So Jesus is just as much God as the Father is God. The, the Spirit is just as much God as the Father is God. That's essence. But in personal relationship, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit differ. <laughs> the Father is the Father of the Son. He is not the Son. The Father did not die on the cross. The Son did. The Father was not sent to dwell in your heart. The Spirit was. While same in essence, they are different in relationship. And so while the Son is distinct from the Father insofar as He is the Son and the Father is the Father, He is still equal with God because He is truly and fully God just like the Father is truly and fully God. Now, you say, Justin, who cares about the deep dive in the theological swimming pool? All right, young people, you can check back in. Why, why does this even matter? Because the Son of God who, who walked on the face of this earth is making clear in this text that He was nothing at all less than the Father. When you hear the term Father and Son, you think, oh, well, the Father, He was the one that's really in charge and the Son is just kind of subservient. No, 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 no. They are equally... God, He is just as authoritative. And by the way, that precludes the alternate authorities. So if the Son Himself is the one that God, had, the Father, has chosen to be like the representative or the spokesperson, if you will, for, for the triune Godhead, that means no one or nothing else is. These religious institutions, I don't care if it's Rome or Mecca or Israel, none of those are the center of authority. And at the same time, the individual self is not the center of authority. You have zero right to claim autonomy over your own life. I know it sounds un-American, but it is biblical. Jesus is the ruler. He is God. He is the representative of the Father. And he is the ruler. Can religious institutions, can extra-biblical religious institutions do the things that the Son can do? Here's the rationale. Can they bring back to life? I've never seen Rome do it. I've never seen Islam do it. I've never seen Judaism do it. They can't bring back to life. That's something that only God can do. Jesus did it. And for all of our powers of self-actualization and following our own heart, has anybody ever been able to escape the curse of death by believing in themselves? It's a failed attempt. They have no power over life, but Jesus does. That is why He is the authority. Are you seeing what I'm saying here? And by extension, He is the judge. So the individualist will judge you for not following yourself, for not being true to yourself, for not following your own sexual impulses in, regard, in disregard to anyone else in the culture. They would judge you for being in the wrong for that. Religious institutions popularly will then say, well, you're not right with God because you don't follow our particular rules. But the only real authority here belongs to the Son. Notice in the text, this is pretty interesting. I don't know all behind this. I'm admitting my limitations, but just to get you thinking... Um, look at verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Ah, I don't know all that that means, except for the fact that the Son is the one who does the judging, though we think it would be the Father. Like within the family business, if you will, judgment has been entrusted to the Son and to none other. This is huge. So, why does this matter? Because Jesus wants them to respond to Him in an appropriate way. Look, look at verse 24. Here's His application to this first argument. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word, 
and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So here's why it matters, friends, because the salvation that any alternate religion would try to provide cannot get you the eternal life. But when you believe in the Son and what the Father has said about Him, you do have eternal life. Popular religion can't get that. Uh, Personal individualism can't get you that. Only Jesus can get you that. So it's a matter of where is our faith ultimately placed? In whom or what are we actually believing? It must be in the divine Son. I want to encourage you with this. We'll dwell on this more as we conclude. But in particular, he says that the one who is believing does not come into judgment. They will not be judged. They will not be condemned. The word judgment in the Greek is very fluid, by the way. Sometimes you hear the word judgment and you immediately think negative, like condemnation. Well, friends, we judge stuff all the time, and it's not always bad. I mean, I think of kids at an art contest. Everybody gets an award. It's just some are judged to be better than others, you know, but like it's a, all right, you get a ribbon. Thanks for participating. And the judgment took place. But sometimes judgment is negative. There's positive Yelp reviews. There's negative Yelp reviews. Sometimes you're acquitted. Sometimes you're condemned. But what the text is implying here is negative judgment. He says that the person who is believing does not come into this condemnation or judgment, but has passed, perfect tense, past action, present results, has passed from death to life. You're already alive. There's no death. There's no condemnation. There's no fear. Romans 8, 1 says it this way, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So being right with this authority, the authority of the Son, gives you automatic life, life forever, life now, not just life now and then you may mess it up by the time you get to the end. You already have life. It is already promised. This authority is good. So Jesus is explaining His ultimate authority. He does it through the theme of representation, but He's going to use another theme. Are you ready for it? And that's the theme of resurrection. Now as we step into verses 25 to 30, I want you to notice something. Um, I have a question for you, though. How many of you in the room would be able to raise your hand and say, I am grammatically inclined? What I mean by that is, you think you know English grammar fairly well. Oh, okay. All right, 10% of you. All right, so that means that the other 90% are grammatically disinclined. All right. <laughs> Now, grammar is important because God inspired His Word uh, in a book, and He wrote it out in sentences. And so there are some things we need to pay attention to. And I don't have to nerd out here, but you do need to recognize something as basic as verb tense. You know, there's past tense verbs, there's present tense verbs, there's future tense verbs. Here's the interesting thing about what's going down here. Jesus switches the argument from primarily present tense verbs to future tense verbs. What he is going to talk about in these next few verses is something that has not happened yet. The proof for his authority, the explanation of his authority, is based in something that will happen in the future, not something that has happened already. And you see it there in verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you. He says, I'm not lying. You can believe this. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, And those who hear will live. You see in the future there? For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus is saying, hey, there's this future event on the eternal calendar. It's called the resurrection. And what he is actually positing here is that he is the one who is in charge of the final resurrection. Like, he rules over that. You know what it's like to go to an event and you can kind of tell who's in charge? Wedding directors are really good at this. I mean, you just know that it's not really the pastor who's in charge of that wedding. It's that lady running around with the clipboard and the little earpiece. 
Like, she's, she's the boss of this kind of ceremony. Jesus is presenting himself as the boss of the most significant ceremony on the eschatological calendar. He's saying, I'm in charge of the resurrection. Look, look at how he says that in verse 25. He says, there's a time coming when the dead will hear the voice of whom? What does it say? The Son of God. And those who hear will live. Now, he's not clear here what kind of resurrection he's talking about. It could be physical. It could be spiritual. We know that we are all dead in trespasses and sins. And when Jesus speaks life to dead individuals, life is given. There is something internal. But it is not limited to the spiritual. Jesus is saying, I am the one who speaks and wakes the physically dead as well. They will live. And the living here... It's talking about eternal life and just mere physical life. I don't know if you've thought about this, but everyone who has ever lived will be resurrected from the dead. Sometimes we think in error that only Christians are resurrected and lost people exist in some soulish existence in hell somewhere. This passage is crystal clear. All will be resurrected. They will be given a physical body once more. And however that happens, it happens through the mere voice of Jesus. What kind of power are we talking about here? I mean, that Galilean carpenter slash rabbi who lived 2,000 years ago, that voice, those vocal cords, will rest... I mean... You say, well, what about cremation? I don't know. But he puts it back together. And some will be resurrected unto life. No judgment. Enjoying the favor of God. Some will be resurrected unto condemnation. And suffer eternally under God. Verse 26 gives one of these mind-blowing things. It says, for as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted also the Son to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Verse 26 is so important and it is so hard and it's another one of those deep dives. You're like, well, what in the world? If Jesus didn't always have life in Himself, if the Son didn't always have life in Himself, did He somehow become God at some point? Uh, I just want to give you a little uh, lesson here. Go from the clear to the unclear. You know what's crystal clear in John 1.1? that Jesus, as the Word, eternally existed as God. But He's still called the Son. And in the way that He functions, He derives certain things from God, like light beams emanating from the Son. Now, when I use that analogy with you, you're thinking, okay, well, the Son was created and then the light beams came. You're thinking chronologically. But the Bible never presents it chronologically. It just presents it ontologically. He is the eternal Son. He has eternally existed from the Father. Here's the fancy term. You want to write this down? Go do some homework and make your head hurt this week. It's called the eternal generation of the Son. He is the Son, but He's the eternal Son. He wasn't born into it at some point. He's eternally existed as the Son of the Father. And that's why, friends... Uh, that, that line that we looked at just a few weeks ago is so important. Do you remember that? We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages. So there was, whatever this birth was that you could try to imagine was before eternity. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And then here's the, the line. Begotten, not made. The only begotten Son. Begotten, not made. Consubstantial with the Father, of the same essence as the Father. Man, this is heavy. But here's the point. This authority that Jesus has, this life that He has in Himself, has come to Him eternally, in eternity passed from the Father. But guess what? The life is still in Himself. He still has absolute power over life. Like, that's how authoritative he is. He rules over all life and judgment. I need a movie reference because we've been in some heavy stuff. 
maybe this picture would be good. I think what's actually being described here is something that would have been um, very easily recognized in the first century world on a human level. That the, the Latin term, and I am probably mispronouncing it, so for you Latin purists out there, I've already excluded myself from your critique. The Latin term for this is patria potestas. The idea that uh, some individuals in Greco-Roman culture actually had absolute authority, even over life and death, of those under their charge. Maybe you've heard the stories of, of Roman fathers who, after the child was delivered, could simply either put a thumbs up or a thumbs down to the midwives to say whether or not they wanted that child to live. Absolute authority over death and life. Here's your movie reference. You may remember Ridley Scott's multiple award-winning classic Gladiator in which on a few instances through that movie, Marcus Aurelius is superintending the gladiatorial battle and one individual falls and the person who would be the victor is given the opportunity at that point to either end the person's life or to show him mercy. Whose decision was that? It was the emperor's. Through a simple thumbs up or a thumbs down, he would exercise absolute power over life and judgment. It was not based on what the Supreme Court said. It was not based on what the Constitution said. It was based on whatever he jolly well pleased. Patria potestas. Jesus here claims patria potestas over the universe. And he doesn't merely give a thumbs up or a thumbs down. With his very voice, some will receive life forever. And some will be condemned to eternal separation from God. Life and judgment are contrasted with one another. Note it. Read. Look at your Bibles. In light of this life that he has within himself, eternally derived from the Father, verse 27 says, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. That judge figure from Daniel chapter 7. This, this is him. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. They're going to hear his voice and he will physically like, bring them back. And they'll come out, and notice this, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, this scares some of us, like even as we're reading it, because like we would want it to say, those who come out and those who have believed to the resurrection of life and those who have not believed to the resurrection of judgment. But what does it actually say? Look at your Bible. It says that those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Uh, friends, what in the world? Did he not just say, just back a few verses later, I mean, uh, before this, that whoever believes in me will have life. He's already passed from life, I mean, from death into life. What is he talking about here? Friends, the, the contrast all throughout the book of John is life and condemnation. Life are, is, are those who have what I would call belief-enabled obedience. How do you know if one is alive, if they've heard the voice of Jesus? It's called belief-enabled obedience. In other places, we call it the fruit. <laughs> if the root is in Jesus, there will be good fruit. That makes sense to you? Your options are life, which comes from belief-enabled obedience, or condemnation, which comes and is evidenced through Christ-rejecting rebellion. Those are the options. You're believing in Jesus and it transforms you, and the way that we know that you have truly believed is that it has impacted your behavior. Or you have this root in your own self-will and rebellion or some false religion, and it just leads... To evil. To living a life in opposition to God. Piper helps me here. He explains it this way. He says, 
This doesn't mean that we're justified by our good works or that God is on our side because of our good works or that we are united to Christ by our good works. It means the reverse. If you are justified by faith, your faith will produce good works. And if God is on your side, he will empower you to do good works. And if you're united to Christ, you will bear the fruit of good works. And in this way, your good works become the evidence, the confirmation, the verification at the judgment that you were justified by faith alone, and that God was on your side by grace alone, and that you were united to Christ before you did any good work. Hey, can I give you a passage that will help you? If if you're struggling with this right now, I hope you are a little bit, because it means you're thinking about the text. If you're struggling with this, write down Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Not 8 to 9, you're going to miss it, 8 to 10. That's that passage that says you're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know that part, right? Listen to verse 10. The sentence continues. Verses mess us up. It's one sentence in the Greek. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. God saved you, and you were saved through belief in Jesus alone. But you know what he was saving you to? A life that would honor and glorify him in the way that you live. And so, the resurrection at the end, those who have believed, and because of that, obedience has been enabled, they will enjoy life eternal. And those who are resurrected, who have rejected and if still living in rebellion to God, will be under His eternal condemnation. I don't have time to go there, but if you want to read it again, go to Revelation 21 that describes the great white throne judgment. And that's that fearful passage, friends, that actually talks about the opening of the books. You remember that? And it says that those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life, they were there. But here's the interesting thing. They're not judged. Only those whose names weren't written in the Lamb's book of life are judged, condemned to eternity in hell. And this entire event is overseen by the Lord Jesus Christ. What gives Him the right to boss around the religious establishment? What gives Him the right to rule over your own heart and life. It is because of his representation. He is the representative of the Father, the Son of the Father from eternity. He does that which God does. And secondly, because of the resurrection, the most important and real day on your calendar and mine, he oversees. This day, this resurrection day, is more real than your next dentist appointment. It's more sure. It's more certain. And nothing, and no one can prepare you for that moment apart from this one, the risen Lord Jesus. Religion can't do that. Self-actualization can't do that. Only Jesus can. He rules over all. He possesses the authority of the Father. It was the theologian Abraham Kuyper who in his, his lecture on, um, on the sovereignty of God, it was called sphere sovereignty, it's an interesting thing to read, makes this famous statement that I love so much and sums up the beauty of this verse. He explains, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Mine. I'm kind of scared, friends, as I read that because... I realize that as I look at it, and I know that many of you have heard it before, I think that we've subtly rewritten it in our own minds so that it reads, 
There is not a square inch in the whole domain of my time of personal devotions in the morning and my church going over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. <laughs> and frankly, when it comes to church stuff, I kind of like to keep a little bit of autonomy there too. The reason why he called it sphere sovereignty is because there is an ultimate rule somewhere. Government's an authority, right? A home is an authority. School is an authority. But what's the ultimate? Some would say that the ultimate authority is the state. And Jesus exists within that. Some people would say the ultimate authority is, again, some organized religion. And that's where we get our relationship with Jesus. Some people... Many people, most people, have actually said that the realm of authority is the individual self, and Jesus can't enhance that. He's a piece within that. But the Bible says that Jesus is the one who envelops all the other spheres. He has ultimate authority. And friends, this is so important. Practically speaking, it should lead us to do at least one of three things. Please note them, and we'll celebrate the Lord's table together to conclude our service. The first practical implication of the ultimate authority of Christ is examination. A text like this calls us us to examine ourselves. Are we truly under the ultimate authority who is Jesus Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Friend, if you have bought into an understanding of Christianity that has somehow protected you from the direct ownership of Jesus, you may not be in Christ. Can I just like tell you like one really like real practical implication of this, if you're saying that Jesus owns you, He owns your body. The cry of the day is that, look, my body, my sexual impulses, they are my own. You cannot tell me what I can do. I can't. True. But Jesus even owns your body. He owns the way that you will find sexual gratification. Like, I don't know of any more intimate level of ownership than that. Now, He owns other things too. He owns your money. He owns your time. I'm just hitting that one because that seems to be the issue du jour. People seem to think that that's the area in which they can express the most autonomy. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus owns it all. And that is a good thing. Like when I'm calling you to examine yourself, I I want you to look at the object and the exercise. He's calling you to rely on Him, to come under the umbrella of His authority because He is a good ruler. You know what it's like to have somebody in charge who's good? Like if you've ever been in a threatening situation and the police show up, like you're glad that they are packing. You're glad that they have the authority to stop that which would harm you. If you've ever, like, struggled to lose weight and you hired a personal trainer, man, you're glad that somebody knows what they're doing. That somebody's been there and done that and knows how to liberate you from yourself. That's why we send our kids to school or we teach them, but we know that left to their own, this is going to be a hot mess. But when they come under the rule of a good authority, there can be flourishing, there can be life, there can be protection, there can be safety. Examine yourselves, friends. Have you relied upon, come under His authority? Or are you resisting it? I love the old hymn. It's so vivid. What does it look like, Justin, to rely upon Jesus? How do I know if I've truly believed? I'm just going to steal it straight from the hymn book. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in Thee. Notice that, like, if there was a storm, you'd hide yourself in a cave. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Have you come under His authority to be saved from wrath? Have you come under His authority to be purified from your sin? 
Second verse. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. What are you leaning in on? Uh, Your passion? Some prayer that you prayed? Your earnestness, your zeal, or Christ and His righteousness? Thou must save and thou alone. And then the last verse I'll read. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Have you come under His authority for cleansing, for righteousness, for dress? Examine yourselves, friends. To enter into Christ's rescue is also to enter under His good rule. There's a second command, implication, and that's only for a few of you, and that is to enter. If you've examined, some of you have already done the examination, you realize you have not yet entered into this kind of relationship with Jesus. You haven't depended upon Him. You haven't found shelter in Him. You are not clinging to Him. You have not looked to faith in the Son of God for release from wrath and cleansing from defilement and atonement for rebellion and clothing for shame and help and need and deliverance from death. What are you waiting for? Do it today. I mean, the nation of Israel, they refused Christ because He claimed to be equal with God and because He broke the Sabbath. But you know why people refuse to come under His rule today? Because they say things like, well, the life of Christ is too demanding or too humiliating or too costly or too disappointing or too irrelevant. Or I'm just going to save that for another time. But you have no other options. You're not assured another day. And talk about demanding, humiliating, costly, and disappointing. I think the religious experience is pretty flat. And I think the hell on earth that we call expressive individualism leaves nothing to be desired. Your only option is Jesus enter in under His authority by faith alone now. I don't have to lead you in a prayer. I don't have to call you up to the platform. Do it now. Here's the last one. I'm sorry I get... I'm not apologizing. I have realized that I'm sounding harsh about Jesus' authority. His authority is something good. So let me check out of my, my default irritable mode and downshift into something more pleasant. The reason I'm so urgent... It's just because eternity's at stake, period. But I want you to know that despite the way I may sound, this is good. Here's the last verb. You ready? Enjoy. So Justin wrote the practical implications of the ultimacy of Jesus' authority. Write this verb down. Here you go. Put it on your to-do list. Enjoy. Jesus wants us to, to know that it is good to operate under His rule. For Him to be the ultimate. Enjoy eternal life. Enjoy not feeling condemned. Enjoy not fearing death itself. Enjoy it! Do you see what He's doing in this text? Like, He's given life to a guy that for 38 years couldn't move. That's what His authority does. Like, he freed the guy up from the paralysis of his own sin. And he could, he could walk about. He was freeing the guy up from the stupid religious rules that the Pharisees had placed upon him. You can walk. You can enjoy the Sabbath. For Jesus is calling you to, to experience the goodness of his authority. And that's why I shared with you that, that line from, from Lewis. Is he safe? Aslan, is he safe? No, he's not safe. But he's good. He's good. For those of you who were hearing what I was saying earlier about Jesus owning your body, can I just give you something? I'll just tell you this in love. You know, even his, his demands 
over your body for sexual purity or monogamy or a lifelong marriage, or if God's given you the gift of singleness remaining in that state, they're good. I know. The world's painted it like it's the worst thing ever. But it's good. Who are you going to trust? You're going to trust your heart in this? Or are you going to trust the Lord? You know that His designs for you to walk with Him in the company of His church? We were like, man, I don't want my weekends clogged up. I want to be able to do what I want to do. This is good. It is so good to be part of a body. To belong. Everybody's like, freedom, freedom, freedom. I want freedom. Tell me, how much fun is the person having traveling the world not able to share that experience with anyone at all? But how good it is to experience the good things of life with other people around. God is giving you a family in Jesus. And so, yeah, He's designed it so that you would walk with Him in the company of His church, and that is a good thing. I could go on and on about the goodness of His law, but I want you to know that even though He is a a lion and He is not safe, He is good, and He invites us to enjoy His presence. We may come before the King as we conclude this service and communion, but notice what He's done. He invites us regularly to His table, not to His workshop. There's no more pleasant time than to come around the table of the King. A meal that He has secured at the cost of His own Son. Body broken, blood shed so that you can enjoy life. Not endure it. He is a good king. And so, friends, I call on you to examine yourselves to see if you're under his authority, to enter in if you have not, and to enjoy him. Even now in this time of communion, knowing that he is a good and gracious king.